0: We're going to be in Hebrews again this morning, Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up. And uh, while you're doing that, I want to tell you a bit of a, a story um, from when I was younger and probably one that some of you can relate to. Um, when I was younger, my family always got the Sears catalog um, every single, I don't know, November, October, uh, right before Christmas. And and my younger sister and I, we would always, uh, always, we would spend literally hours flipping through this massive catalog uh, with a red pen. And we'd be circling uh, all of the things that we saw that, that we wanted for Christmas. And as you can imagine, this uh, amounted to an otherworldly amount of, of things on our Christmas list, uh, stuff that no good parent would ever consider getting a child that much stuff. And, and so my parents would have to uh, discern... Uh, what were our top priorities on that Christmas list? And, and so uh, we, we made it relatively easy for them, whether we knew it or not, because you just go to the most crumpled pages, because those were the pages that were held uh, the, mo- the most. And, and many times the, the catalog would be left open to the spot where the, with the things that we wanted. It was a not-so-subtle hint of uh, what we desired most for Christmas. And in the course of time, uh, Christmas morning would arrive, and uh, with it would come presence under the tree, sometimes those gifts um, lined up with what we had circled in the catalog. Sometimes they weren't, but I will tell you one thing, and that is that whatever was under the tree was infinitely better than the pictures that we found in that catalog. What was the object of my affection in the days and weeks that would lead up to Christmas quickly was forgotten because it was displaced by something that was much more tangible and much realer to me. The picture in that catalog would fade in the all-surpassing greatness of what was the real thing before me. In fact, it would have been absolutely unthinkable for me to take the real thing and say, hey, you know what? This is, this is nice, but I'm actually going to go back to that picture in the catalog, thank you very much, and then run to the, to the, the coffee table, to that catalog, or dig it out of the recycling bin and, and content myself with just staring at the picture once more. And that image is a little bit of, of what the, the author of Hebrews is trying to, to describe here in the main chunk of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. The, Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews is all about God's greatness. It's all about Jesus' superiority over everything else. And in, in, in doing that, he, he says that everything that's come before is just a shadow, while Jesus is the real thing. He is the main thing. And so over the course of the book of Hebrews, we see him do this many times. He first starts by saying, hey, you know the rest that God's law promises you, the rest that the people of Israel experienced when they entered into the promised land, that is nothing compared to the rest that Jesus will offer you. Hebrews chapter 4, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hebrews 7, we see something similar. We see that the priests of the Old Covenant, as good as they are, they pale in comparison to Jesus, our high priest. It says this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives To make intercession for them. Hebrews 8, again, we see something similar. We see that the good promises of the Old Testament are nothing compared to the promises that we can see and we can find in Jesus. Hebrews 8, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So what we see here is what comes before, as good as it is, is just a shadow of the greatness that is found in Jesus. I mentioned that we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. We're going to look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, and what we're going to see is the exact same thing that our sermon title, or our series title is, that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than anything else that we could fathom this Christmas. So let's uh, pause and, and take a few moments to pray. But before we do that, I, I just want us to give our, our, our outline this morning. This passage breaks into uh, to four sections, and each of those sections makes a statement about what Christmas is about or the significance of Christmas. So let's pause, let's pray as we approach God's word. God, it is uh, so good to um, hear your word, and so we thank you for it. We thank you for the message of the gospel. And we thank you that that message was on display and was heard from the lips of these children just a few moments ago. And so, God, as we approach your word this morning, we do ask that you would help us to calm our hearts, that you would help us to set aside the distractions that surround us and help us to turn our eyes to you, Jesus. God, we ask that you would bless this time in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So first section, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of their sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Passage here starts with a strong claim about the sacrifices that we see take place in the Old Testament. Those sacrifices will never make you clean. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was never meant to make you clean or right before God. Verse 1 tells us as much. The law, or what we see in the Old Testament, may be a good thing, but it is not the main thing. It was never meant to be the main thing. It was never meant to be the main person. The law, the Old Testament, is a shadow, and now we have the true reality Found in Jesus. Consider the author's argument here in the first two verses of this chapter. Why are the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, the slaughtering of millions of bulls and goats and lambs, why are they unable to make you clean? Well, according to this passage, even though just a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 9, we see the author say this without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Even though that is the case, the author says that if if these things were uh, good enough to, to save you, to cleanse you from sin, then wouldn't they have stopped? And this makes a fair bit of sense. The very repetition of these sacrifices shows that they are inadequate to deal with our sin. It's not as though you had to make one sacrifice in your life and then your sins were paid for sacrifices were often offered day after day in the temple and before that in the tabernacle for the sins of the people. Even the most important sacrifice in the Jewish sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement, offered once a year. Even this sacrifice was offered each and every year. And it was totally inadequate to cleanse people from the guilt of their sin. And we see this throughout the Old Testament as well. Many of those who earnestly sought God with their lives began to realize that even though God instituted the sacrificial system, it was never meant to make us clean before him. So David, moments after the biggest sin of his life, when in the uh, situation with Bathsheba where he commits adultery, he says this, For you will not delight in a sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Lord rebukes Israel in the beginning of Isaiah for dead and lifeless religion. It writes, uh, says this in Isaiah 1, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fats of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Same is found in the book of Hosea, Hosea 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, we find passages where people conclude that the sacrificial system is totally inadequate to deal with our sin, to save us from ourselves. But notice that this passage here in Hebrews chapter 10 doesn't just talk about saving us from ourselves. It also says that we need to be saved from this crushing weight of guilt that comes from sin. And if anything, the sacrificial system doesn't save people from their sins. And in fact, reminds them of their sins. Day after day, year after year, the slaughter of countless animals was meant to be a reminder to the people of the awfulness of their sin. Many of the sacrifices, if you look at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, many of the sacrifices that were offered up day after day, you, if you were offering up a sacrifice, it would be very personal for you. You would be the one who would slit the throat of the animal, or you would be the one who would wring the animal's neck. The dying bleats of these animals would fill your ears And they would haunt you with with a reminder of why such a death was necessary. And you might be saying, well, what of today? What of today? After all, the notion of guilt may seem a bit out of place in today's society. Many people are quite cavalier in their disregard for the law of God. Many people don't lose too much sleep in their disregard for God's commands. But if we dig a little deeper, we can see that this, this search... For, for a clean conscience covers so much of what we do. Especially at Christmas, much of what we do can be predicated on dealing with guilt. Or another way of saying that is on feeling good about ourselves. So a couple examples. Uh, sports teams, and, and none of these examples are bad things. I, I, these are very good things, but oftentimes they come from the wrong motives. So consider these Sports teams can go and visit sick kids in the hospital, and they wear Santa hats. Again, noble thing, and, and the smiles on the, the faces of those kids makes it totally worth it. And I don't, I don't want to presume to know the motives of those people, but I'm sure that some of them do it because they know or think it is the right thing to do. And if you dig deeper into that sense of doing something that is the right thing to do, why is it important for us to do the right thing? thing. It's because we want to be good people, right? And good people do the right thing. They do good things. They, and doing good makes us feel good about ourselves. So at its core, Oftentimes, many of the actions that we do are dealing with this sense of guilt, with this sense of, I feel bad about myself, and now I want to feel good about myself. And the same is true with giving presents to the less fortunate, or serving in a soup kitchen, or inviting the lonely over for a meal at Christmas. Good, beautiful things. Keep doing them. But oftentimes, we do these things because we have a sense of guilt in our hearts, and we would never use that language to describe it. But we feel bad about ourselves and want to feel good about ourselves. And all too often, we can run to these horizontal things, these other things, to try to cleanse a guilty conscience, to cleanse a guilty heart with something that will never make us clean. At its core, these first few verses declare this, nothing else can cleanse your guilty conscience this Christmas. Nothing else can cleanse your guilty conscience this Christmas. Everything else is totally inadequate in dealing with the sense of guilt and this desire to feel good about ourselves, whether it is conscious or not. Nothing else can deal with that guilt. Nothing but Jesus. Consider the second section, 5 through 10. Consequently... He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This is a confusing section. And if you work your way through um, Hebrews, it is is a masterful book, but it's also a very difficult book to understand where the author is going at times and why he quotes the Old Testament in in certain places. This is one of those places where he quotes the Old Testament, he quotes uh, Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8. And this is an astounding revelation. This is what it's saying, that Hebrews 10 gives us insight into Jesus' thought process at Christmas. It gives us insight into what Jesus is thinking when he prepares himself to go to earth. That's what's in view here at the very beginning of verse 5, when it says, When Christ came into the world, he said, So this is telling us that Jesus, before the beginning of the Christmas story, before the beginning of Matthew, before the beginning of Luke, before all of these things that we are so familiar with at Christmas, before all of that, we have a picture, a glimpse of what Jesus is thinking before the Christmas story starts. And Jesus, before Christmas, actually starts, he quotes Psalm 40, this psalm in the Old Testament, and he says, this is a declaration of what my mission is. As I'm about to go to earth, this is what I am about to do. So what is he about to do? Verses 5 and 6, Jesus points out that the sacrificial system is never meant to, to make us right with God. He says, sacrifices, offerings you've not desired, burnt offerings, sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. a statement of purpose here. As we saw in the previous section, the sacrificial system is never meant to save us, but instead it is meant to point us to our need for a Savior when he finally comes. Notice uh, the limitations of the law here. Jesus has mentioned them, and then he tells us what his mission is. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So here's Jesus. He's preparing for the events that we celebrate at Christmas. And what is Jesus' concern? Well, his concern is to do the will of God. His concern is that he would be faithful to the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament, prophecies that not only concern his, his birth, like the ones that we heard a few moments ago from Janae and, and from Ali, but the totality of his life. Jesus' primary concern here and what brings him to earth is a desire to do his Father's will. It is his desire to do the will of God and that's what brings him to earth at Christmas as a baby, but it's also that commitment to the will of God that actually leads him to the cross. Consider the words of verse 10 once more. And by that will... In other words, by the will of God, by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When the text says this, it reminds us that the will of God is that Jesus would come to earth at Christmas and offer himself up as a sacrifice for us. Jesus says to his father by quoting this psalm, the old sacrifices are not enough. They've never been enough, but you have prepared a body for me so that I might become a sacrifice that is more than enough. These verses remind us of the heart of Jesus at Christmas. I think a lot of times uh, at Christmas, we focus on the heart of Joseph and how benevolent he was, the heart of, of Mary, how faithful she was. We focus on the hearts of the shepherds as they desire to see this newborn king with the hearts of the wise men, how far they've traveled to come and see Jesus. But here we see Jesus' heart. It is a heart that is fully consumed with a desire to do his Father's will, no matter the cost. This is a second statement about Christmas this morning. Christmas began with a commitment to do God's will. Christmas began with a commitment to do God's will. Christmas would never have happened without a commitment and a delight from Jesus to do the will of his Father. There would be no virgin birth. There would be no angels singing glory to God in the highest. There would be no salvation at the cross without Jesus' commitment to do his Father's will. Christmas began with a commitment to do God's will. Now, verses 5 through 10 tell us how Christmas begins. The next few verses, verses 11 through 14, actually tell us how Christmas ends. Start in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting, for, or waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The focus of this passage here centers on, of all things, it centers on difference of posture. Between the Old Testament, Old Covenant priests and Jesus. Let me explain. Now, if you were to to pull out your Bible and you were to flip open to the very end of Exodus, and you'll find a number of chapters, I think it's Exodus 25-ish through the end of the book, focuses on all of God's commands for the tabernacle and how you were supposed to, how the Israelites were supposed to build the tabernacle. If you were to look at all of those rules and instructions for the tabernacle, and if you were to flip over to 1 Kings and you were to look at the the instructions for building the temple, the places where God's sacrifices and these offerings before God were to be made, if you were to look at all of, of those commands on how to build the tabernacle and the temple, you would find that there would be no instructions for building chairs in the tabernacle and temple. There were no chairs, there were were no places for the priests to sit in God's presence. When they're ministering before God, they are never allowed to sit. And you might ask, well, why exactly is that? Well, the answer is because their work is never done. They are making sacrifices, and, and they have sin that always needs to be atoned for. And for centuries, God's priests are standing before God, offering these sacrifices because the work is never done. That's what verse 11 tells us. But then, verse 12, what does it tell us about Jesus? Jesus. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When the priests of the old covenant never sat down because their work was never done, Jesus, after he offers up himself, sits down at the right hand of God because his offering is enough. For centuries, priests have offered these sacrifices that are never enough, but when Jesus offers himself, he is able to sit because his work is done. He does not need to offer himself again. There is no follow-up. He sat and even now sits at the right hand of God because his work was enough for you and for me. What's more, the rest of this passage tells us that Jesus is not just seated because his work is done, he is also seated because he is ruling and he is reigning. For the last time and for the first time, the Jewish high priest and the Jewish king are the exact same person. You see, if, if Christmas begins with a commitment to do God's will, here we see how it ends it ends with a reigning priest. A priest seated on a throne. As we celebrate this morning, Jesus is exalted and reigning. His work is enough to cover over all of your faults and failures. Tomorrow, as we go our own ways, Jesus is exalted and reigning. And his work is enough to cover all of your faults and failures until the end of time. And beyond, Jesus is exalted and reigning because his work is more than enough to cover all of your faults and to cover all of your failures. Christmas ends with a reigning priest who even now still reigns. As we look at the final few verses of this passage, starting in verse 15, we see one final statement and the holy spirit also bears witness to us for after saying this is the covenant that i will make with them after those days declares the lord i will put my laws on their hearts and will write on and write them on their minds then he adds i will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin if you hear that previous section and are left wondering, how can I be sure that Jesus's sacrifice is enough? How can I be sure that, that Jesus has, has paid for all of my sin, that all that I have done, all that I keep doing, all the ways that I fail God, that I mess up, how can I be sure that Jesus's sacrifice is enough for someone like me? Then, then these final few verses are meant For you. The author of the book of Hebrews points to the Old Testament. He points to Jeremiah and says, Hey, you know that part in Jeremiah when it talks about this new covenant, this this time where God is, is no longer going to have this old covenant, but he's going to write his laws on the people's heart. When God says that, right after that, he says this: I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. God himself promises a new way, and when he provides that new way, he will also forgive his people completely and fully. God himself, through his Holy Spirit, testifies that this forgiveness is sure and complete and total. You see, here's the final statement about Christmas from this passage. Christmas gives us assurance of forgiveness. It gives us assurance of forgiveness. If what we celebrate at Christmas is true, if if this moment uh, where we, we remember God coming to earth, if, if Jesus really did do this because he came to do his Father's will, then we have no reason to doubt the rest. We have no reason to doubt the rest of Jesus' life. We have no reason to doubt that this forgiveness is total and complete for us. And as we celebrate the wonder and the beauty of Christmas, we celebrate the wonder and beauty that we can have full assurance that we are forgiven. Totally. Without reservation. We are forgiven by Jesus if we are found in him. And that's how I want to end this morning. With just one simple question. Have you found what Jesus is offering you? Have you found what Jesus is offering you? The story of Christmas is a part of a larger story of God offering you forgiveness and salvation. It's a story of Jesus obeying his father totally so that we could become a part of God's family. It's a story of Jesus making a way in the midst of all of our guilt, all of our shame, for that to be taken away. It's a story of assurance. Have you found what Jesus is offering you? This Christmas, don't miss the true message of the gospel, a story of what Jesus has done for you. Don't miss the greater Christmas that Jesus offers to anyone who would come to him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to turn our hearts and our minds to you, that we would remember what you offer us at Christmas. I confess it is so easy to be distracted. And so, Lord, we ask for your help to remember the greatness of what you Have done for us. If there's anyone here this morning who who hasn't received what you offer to us in the gospel, this freedom of forgiveness and this salvation, this cleansing from the guilt of the sin that weighs us down, God, I ask that you even now would be at work in their hearts, that they would come to find true rest, true peace, true freedom and the perfectly obedient Son. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.